Before we get started today, I owe an apology. There are a large number of rights within the Catholic Church. When I was talking about the Deuterocanon in Scripture, I was only looking at one of those rights, specifically the Latin rite. Now, that is a problem because the erasure of Eastern Catholics is a common phenomenon, unfortunately, within Catholicism. The majority Latin Catholics often overlook Eastern Catholics. And that is a problem because Eastern Catholics have died for their Catholic faith through the years. We'll look more at the overall Catholic Church and the rites that make it up as we go in future episodes, but for now I just wanted to correct that glaring error in my presentation of the Deuterocanon, and I'm sure I've made some comments that left off Eastern Catholics in previous episodes as well. For that, I apologize. It's not cool. It's not excusable. It's something where I knew better but didn't keep it in mind. So I will work to do better moving forward. Frankly, I don't ask for your patience. I ask for corrections when I make mistakes. So there's one. Mea culpa. Now, let's go ahead and get started. Welcome to the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Jesu Domine, Dona e Israquiem. This is a popular, popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History through Pope-colored glasses. My name is Greg, and this is episode 0.8. Rome, part 1. All vias lead to Italia. In the episode so far, we've discussed what most popes would have considered the theological roots of Christianity, the covenants, patriarchs, and prophets of old. These are all profoundly impacted by Jesus Christ, as we'll discuss soon, and make no mistake, the Incarnation is, from a Christian perspective, nothing short of the linchpin of the universe. But there's another major ingredient beyond the First Testament, and we should look at it in detail due to the definite impact it too, has on our story. Rome. Now, a quick caveat. Researching and writing this mini-series was an incredibly intimidating proposition from start to finish, because from what I can tell, there is no historical topic more generally popular than ancient Rome. If you're listening to this episode and thinking, you probably know more about the ancient Rome than I do, it's probably because you almost certainly do. I'm a fan of this history, but it's by no means my specialty. Please do feel free to offer corrections. I always try to keep things accurate, and I do re-record things when I need to. But, you know, just be understanding. Again, caveat, this is not my specialty. I will go ahead and give a content warning for this episode. There are various rapes and murders and so forth, so just be aware of that as we go into it. Rome's presence is felt throughout the Gospels, from Augustus numbering the world in the Gospel of Luke, to the crucifixion, to the city with seven hills in the book of Revelation. And of course, when it comes to the papacy, 
Rome starts to loom even larger after the Gospels, with the Eternal City, one of its many nicknames, serving as the home of the papacy for all but 67 of the next nigh-on 2,000 years, through thick and through decidedly thin. So there's no way I'm going to be able to avoid talking about Rome, and no matter how daunting, let's see if we can build Rome in a few hours. And we might as well look at it with much the same grand arc we used for the Judean slash Jewish roots, though we'll skip the pagan creation stories because that would be met with varying degrees of scorn by generic Catholics through the years. We'll go ahead and meet these legends halfway, starting with the ruins of the city of Troy, the fall of which was most famously captured in two works traditionally attributed to the 8th century BC blind bard Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Those are good reads. Achilles features in some of the best action sequences I've ever read, but our focus is actually mainly on the third most famous piece of literature to draw from the story of the fall of Troy, the Aeneid by the 1st century BC poet Publius Virgilius Maro, generally known as Virgil. Now, now, don't be concerned. I'm not giving the 12 books of the Aeneid the kind of treatment I've been giving the Bible. But I do want to make sure you know that the Romans generally trace their natural origins through Aeneas, the near-eponymous hero of the Aeneid. The Aeneid starts with what I'm going to treat as a heads-up concerning the narrow focus and at times downright comedic bias of our stories and sources for ancient Rome. Arma virumque cano. Of arms and men I sing. War and dudes. The culture and governing mechanisms of the time will work together to make sure that we'll be looking mainly at men, and the culture that's passed down these stories has further made sure that we know very little about anyone but the so-called great men involved. Women, like Julia, Gaius Marius' wife, were typically understood in their relation to men. In her case, Gaius Marius' wife, and also Julius Caesar's aunt. We'll tend to save lesser-known things, like, you know, women, for the main show something to look forward to. And even then, it is tricky with the scarcity of sources and the tendency for women to be kept far from the papacy. But there are exceptions to that, which we'll look at when we get there. And clearly, women are also impacted by papal rulings, which we'll look at as well. But for now, let's go ahead and look at super patriarchal Rome. According to the Aeneid, Roman origins trace back to the Trojan side of the Trojan War, since Aeneas was a great-grandson of the founder of Troy and a slightly distant cousin of the Trojan king, Priam. The other side of the conflict, I might as well mention, was the Greeks. And I might as well also mention that most historians these days actually do think the Trojan War narrative was indeed based on actual events that actually happened around 1200 BC in modern Turkey. Though, of course, many of the specific details are unverifiable and almost certainly incorrect. Not that we're going to go too far into specific details. Just remember that Aeneas was traditionally a Trojan who escaped the presumably burning city and fled off into the Mediterranean. After a layover in the North African city of Carthage to quickly acquire and then jilt a lover in the form of Queen Dido, Aeneas and his companions end up landing in the western Italy, where Aeneas ends up marrying Lavinia, the daughter of the local king, Latinus. To give an idea of how close we are to straight-up mythology here, Latinus's parents are a god and a nymph. But really, I'm bearing the lead here, since we're told Aeneas himself was the son of the love goddess Venus. 
nor are we done with divine DNA in the gene pool, since 15 generations down the line, the story goes, the war god Mars will rape Rhea Silvia, one of Aeneas' direct descendants. This rape results in twin boys, Romulus and Remus. As descendants of Aeneas, Romulus and Remus hold claim to the throne of Alba Longa, the community that had formed in the intervening years. Unfortunately for them, the current king of Alba Longa had his own opinions on that, and he left them to die on the bank of the Tiber River. Well, actually, as far as he knew, he had had them killed, but similarly to the story of Moses, his order wasn't quite followed to the letter, it's hard to kill children, and they were simply left to their fate on the banks of the river. Here again, at least in poetic tellings, we have divine intervention, as the resident god of the Tiber River, creatively named Tiburnius, intervenes and delivers the infants to a nursing wolf, who keeps them fed until they're found by a shepherd, who raises them with his wife. Now, there is some question whether the lupa, that is, she-wolf, in question was actually a sex worker. I, I mean, a human sex worker, since the word actually functions as slang, it meant both. Now, I mention this detail because the wolf thing is like the single best-known anecdote from the story of the founding of Rome, and I might as well talk about it as long as I can. Aeneas? Aeneas who? In the popular imagination, it's all about the twins and that she-wolf. Alright, so one more she-wolf tidbit, because there's a really famous statue called the Capitoline Wolf, depicting Romulus and Remus sucking at the breasts of the she-wolf. And when I say really famous, I mean, at this point, if you don't have an image of this statue around when you do a history of Rome, have you really done a history of Rome? Incidentally, I put this statue out on social media in the build-up to the show on Facebook and Twitter, and theoretically I'll get to Instagram eventually, all at Popular History. I am going to go ahead and do the Instagram thing, since Vice Pope Mrs. Popular History recommended I do an Instagram, even though visuals, frankly, scare and confuse me. Now, speaking, at least, of being confused, that last tidbit I teased wasn't the mere existence of the statue, though feel free to keep counting that as a tidbit if you thought it was, and in that case, consider this a bonus tidbit. Radiocarbon dating suggests that the statue is likely much newer than folks used to think. Well over a thousand years newer, likely cast sometime after the year 1000, rather than being an Etruscan artifact from the 5th century before Christ, as was long thought. Enough about the lupa. Let's move forward with the story of Romulus and Remus who, incidentally, I, I can't stop, were added to the Capitoline Wolf later still, in the 15th century. Apart from the wolf thing, there are various little tales I could tell, but I don't tell any of them as well as Roman historians, like Livy, and you can look up his version of things as well as several others with relative ease, especially if you check out perseus.org. That's P-E-R-S-E-U-S dot O-R-G. I'm still a librarian. I promise I wouldn't leave you hanging without a referral to perhaps the greatest free repository of classical Roman and Greek stuff around. There's enough there to keep you busy for a lifetime if you'd like. It's beautiful. A bit short of beautiful is the way Romulus ends up killing his brother Remus after they'd had a madcap adventure restoring their grandfather to the throne of Alba Longa. You see, after settling that business and learning their true identity, Romulus and Remus had set off to found a new city in the area where they had been abandoned, which cues us up for the Roman Kingdom. 
Romulus and Remus couldn't agree on which of the traditionally seven hills in the area that they should use to start off their city building. They agree to settle their dispute by bird watching, and Remus sees the chosen birds, six vultures, first. But Romulus then sees twelve vultures, and they fight over whether first birds or most birds is a better sign. Romulus ends up killing Remus, and the city he founds goes down as Rome, which might be for the best, because Reem doesn't have quite the same ring to it. The next big ticket story is the rape of the Sabine woman. I was going to go into it in some detail, but I took the name of one of the main characters, a commander named Spurius, as a hint. Maybe the early Romans grabbed a bunch of wives from the Sabines, using rape here in the old rape of the lock sense, and maybe they didn't. And yeah, the treatment of women throughout history has long been such that the modern definition of the word could apply in many cases as well. Now, I don't have a clever transition ready to go from the cheery topic of rape, so we'll just go ahead and start talking about the new city and the governing kingdom of Rome, which carried on through seven kings, from April 21st, 753 BC, to early 509 BC. I'm a bit miffed I couldn't easily find an exact date for the overthrow of the Roman monarchy and the establishment of the Republic to match the exact date for the founding of the city, a shortcoming possibly due in part to it being a longer-than-one-day process at the end. I could definitely say it started in early 509, since we have a date of February 28, 509, as the date of the first battle where the ousted king, uh, Lucius Tarquinius Superbus, shorthanded as Tarquin the Proud, tried and failed to get his kingdom back. Now, there are some grounds for being skeptical of the year given here, since it's just a little too perfect. It turns out that 509 BC just happens to be one year before the, I am led to believe, substantially better documented arrival of democracy in Athens under Clisthenes in 508 BC, which is really fortunate because otherwise the Romans could have felt like maybe they weren't the best at everything. So it's great that the last king was definitely driven out when he was in 509 and Definitely not any later than that. And I mean, you know what? Could have been. Maybe. Now, we've still got a few things to talk about yet while we're still in the kingdom period, so let's go ahead and put the kings back on the throne for a few minutes. In all honesty, I've gone through multiple courses that covered the Roman kingdom, and I managed to miss a very interesting detail. The kings of Rome were elected. Some of the kings were related, but certainly not all. And upon the death of the king, we're told, the senators took turns governing the kingdom for short spans, uh, five days, until a new king could be elected. But, wait, where did those senators come from? Well, and I'm probably a touch overdue for mentioning this, probably not in the way the sources describe, namely that Romulus picked them all out, finding a hundred trusted men to set in authority, whose descendants would become the patrician class, that is, the aristocracy, in contrast to the plebeian class, basically the commoners. Now, it's pretty likely that nothing we've been talking about and nothing we will be talking about for the next few hundred years happened exactly as described. Take, for example, the constant drumbeat of long, full reigns. Romulus, 37 years. Numa Pompilius. 42 years. Tullius Hostilius, 31 years. Ancus Marcius, 
26 years. Lucius Tarquinius Priscus, 37 years. Servius Tullius, 43 years. Lucius Tarquinius Superbus, 26 years. Now, it's possible that for well over 200 years, the Romans had a run of good luck with each of their rulers living lives that would be considered full even by modern standards. But a streak of seven monarchs, each with reigns exceeding 25 years, would be unprecedented in the modern world, much less in the ancient world. It's highly likely that the Roman kingdom had more rulers than the seven traditional kings we see listed, and one might blame the lack of records following the Celtic sack of Rome for creating those seven likely semi-mythological figures. You patch up the missing spots by stretching out the reins, give them thematically appropriate contribution from the kings, and there you have it, a reconstructed early history of Rome. If we think ahead a bit into the state of early Christianity before it became legal, you might start to wonder if maybe some of the history of the papacy had similar things going on, although there aren't as many signs of, you know, padded and smoothed over regnal lengths. Anyways, let's not dwell or guess too much of what we just don't know. We may only really have stories for this period, but just as the Bible stories are useful for seeing the world through Pope-colored glasses, so too, to a lesser extent, are the stories of Rome. The popes, especially the early popes, would know them, as would the Roman citizens and the residents they interacted with, so we should know them too. Interestingly, we do see some things first mentioned here that we'll see carried on into the papacy. For instance, when a candidate for the kingship was approved by the Senate, he would also need to be approved by the Curia, which was then a representative assembly of the populace divided into 30 wards, and is now a term for the many bureaucratic mechanisms of the Catholic Church, ultimately overseen by the Pope, but really it's a tangled web of officials that, like any tangled web of officials, gets a lot of criticism, and I'd say rightly so. The Curia, and I won't specify because these days there's only one institution left that goes by that title, the Curia is often targeted for reforms as a rallying cry, and yet it always seems to return to form, with all the inertia of a sprawling bureaucracy grown fat through the centuries of entitlement and protocol. Alright, you got me. Big Curia fan right here. How could you tell? So, with the famous Roman Senate voting and the People's Assembly known as the Curia approving, the successor to Romulus is installed. One Numa Pompilius, as I mentioned when I rattled off the Seven Kings a minute ago. Numa Pompilius deserves a moment of our time because it's Numa who gets credit for instituting much of ancient Roman religion, from the Vestal Virgins to the office of Pontifex Maximus. Now, things like the Vestal Virgins are pagan shenanigans we're going to officially ignore with our Pope-colored glasses, at least until we do a series that works them in. It's on the list because people see virgins and they wonder what the connections are. Well, we'll see. But that Pontifex Maximus title functionally Latin for high priest, though potentially also Latin for high bridge builder, that title sure sounds familiar. Indeed, Pontifex Maximus has very much carried over into the modern era, given that at Pontifex, that's P-O-N-T-I-F-E-X, is literally the Pope's official Twitter handle. Which, by the way, the Pope unironically has a Latin language Twitter. And believe it or not, that's actually for functional purposes rather than merely symbolic or aesthetic. A portion of His Holiness's audience is better with Latin than they are with any of the other languages he tweets in, 
since Latin is still the official language of the church. Now, should I explore the use of Latin in the Catholic Church in a future segment? Yes. Yes, I should. Is this Pontifex conversation also now a decent time to yet again plug Bree and Fry's Pontifax podcast? Yes. Yes, it is. It's always a good time to point you to Pontifex. Now, unlike the use of Latin, which is well-documented and we can say with confidence has continued unbroken since antiquity, the actual use of the Pontifex Maximus title may be a medieval throwback to Roman styles rather than an unbroken use carried directly over from the classical world. I've seen sources confidently state contradictory information here. For my part, well, I'm skeptical, but now, what do I know? Now, there isn't a lot more of interest to us in terms of the kings, so let's just jump back to King Tarquin the Proud being run out of town. There's some tidbits here, which, when combined, certainly make for a rather interesting picture. First off, when the Romans decided to abandon the idea of having a king, they made sure they abandoned it thoroughly. The Roman Republic. Now, perhaps thoroughly was a poor choice of words because in some ways the monarchy was dead indeed and in other ways it wasn't. There were now two leaders of the Romans called consuls. They both had unlimited authority, so they were king-like in that regard, but since monarchy literally means rule by one, well, there being two of them was definitely a change. And yes, since they weren't always on the same page, there was one check on their power, the other consul, who could veto decisions if they were around. If a veto was made, nothing was done. Consuls would serve a one-year term and then step aside, so that was different from being a kingly type too, though as long as they took some time off between shifts, re-election was a possibility. This ban on consecutive consulships lasted for quite a while, but it did fade towards the end of the Republic. Now a certain Lucius Junius Brutus, one of the first consuls, is known for something called the Oath of Brutus, a promise the people evidently swore that they would never allow there to be a king again. And this rejection of kingship had some real staying power. It's why Julius Caesar will get the old stabity stab in part from someone named Brutus when the time comes. Now, speaking of executing enemies of the Roman Republic, one thing Brutus gets to do as a consul is oversee the execution of his own sons for trying to restore Tarquinius Superbus to the monarchy. Now, why are the sons of a founder of the Roman Republic running around trying to put the king back on the throne? Well, we don't have their diaries, but one thing to keep in mind is that Tarquinius Superbus was kin, and the kin of my sons is also my kin, as the saying goes which, incidentally, was also true of the co-consul, Colatinus. In Colatinus's case, it really bites him in the behind because he is forced to resign as consul in order to help make a clean break from the Tarquins. Which, again, uh, Brutus was also a Tarquin relative. So, that's a thing. Of course, Brutus had already done some serious loyalty proving with the whole executing his sons thing, not to mention the anti-king oath, though, of course... Talk can be cheap, but Brutus would soon die fighting against ex-king Tarquinius in that first battle we mentioned earlier, the one that took place on February 28th. After the death of Brutus and the resignation of Colatinus, replacements were found for both. And one of their replacements died of old age before he could finish out his term, so if you're keeping track, that's five consuls in the first year of the Republic, with 
neither of the two that started finishing the one-year term. Compare that to the shortest reign of 26 years for the kings, and you can see why we're seeing quite a contrast there. Now, I know what you're thinking. It seems potentially inconvenient to have two consuls with equal authority in an emergency. After all, to paraphrase, when two people are in charge, that means no one's in charge. So the Senate had the ability to nominate a dictator, a third individual who would run things during a military emergency who was not subject to any of this vetoing or nullifying business. He would act like, say, a dictator, and whose term of service would be limited to six months. The most famous dictator was King Canatus, who, according to legend, was drafted into the role from the hard scrabble life of a farmer, took care of business, and then willingly laid down the mantle of most powerful men in the kingdom to return to farming. Twice. Now, there's one more office that pops up in the last few days of the Republic. The Tribune of the Plebs. The tribunes were, and pardon what is probably a terrible comparison, but I'm going to run with it, the tribunes were basically union reps, representing the interest of the plebeian class, similar to how, one could argue, the Senate and the consuls represented the interests of the patrician class. And I'm fairly confident the analogy works to a certain degree, since I saw the walkout that led to the formation of the tribunate described as the first recorded strike in history. The power of the tribune lay most memorably in their status as sacrosanct, meaning they could not be harmed or even interfered with, with the punishment for infraction of that sacrosanctity being death, presumably carried out by a plebeian mob. As to why someone might want to harm or interfere with them, well, another one of their powers was their ability to veto the decisions and decrees of magistrates. And the prohibition against physically harming them was especially important because their veto had to be exercised in person. I imagine they did plenty of running around at times. And I need to note that this overview of offices during the Republican period is still woefully inadequate. For one thing, eventually in certain respects, officials called the censors exceeded the authority of the consuls, though they still had the vetoing one another thing going on. I'm simplifying by focusing on the consuls, and they did carry on as critical generally even if their sphere of responsibility shrank somewhat through the years. Now, moving ahead, name-dropping seven kings was manageable, but no, I'm not doing that with the literally hundreds of consuls. Even accounting for non-consecutive repeats, the total number's got to be in the thousands, so we'll give a broad outline. To start with, ex-King Tarquinius stuck around for years before he died in 495 BC, which is nice of him because it gives me one more chance to talk about his name and what it suggests. You see, 91 kilometers, which I'm actually going to call 57 miles from Rome, there was a city called Tarquinia. I say miles as a nice Americanized take on miles, the OG Roman unit of measure based on and named after a thousand paces of a Roman legion. Miles meaning thousand. Now, technically, a modern mile is about 430 feet shorter than a Roman mile, but that's going to really confuse future listeners who missed that part if I use that measurement for the show, so I'm going to be sticking with a modern U.S. mile, since if y'all didn't know I was the Yankee before, you sure know it now. It's also just going to be easier with the calculations. So let's go back those 57 miles to the point. Tarquinia is almost certainly where the seventh and last king, 
Lucius Tarquinius got his family name, which is interesting because Tarquinia was an Etruscan city, not a Roman one. Indeed, the last three kings of Rome are called the Etruscan kings, which is made especially interesting because Etruria was one of the perennial sparring partners of Rome, including under at least one of those Etruscan kings. And when I say perennial, I mean tradition as relayed by Livy holds that friggin' Aeneas had squared off against the Etruscans. Considering that the conquest of Etruria would carry on until 264 BC, that's almost a thousand years of conflict between the two. Now, it's not like the Etruscans were a single entity where an attack on one was an attack on all. There was some confederation, but it was absolutely possible to pick off bits without going to war against the whole, and that was the playbook for the whole period of Rome's gradual conquest of Etruria. Of course, the Etruscans weren't the only ones Rome butted up against as she started making her own way around the world. Remember Alba Longa, the kingdom whose dynasty actually had included Romulus and Remus? Well, maybe not actually, but at least according to legend. Well, Alba Longa founded and originally headed up the Latin League, a confederation of Latin tribes, the same tribal group the early Romans belonged to, as you might have already guessed if you recalled that the Romans spoke a language called Latin. Now, the other Latins didn't always play nice with Rome, or perhaps I should put that the other way around. Now, you know what? Pope colored glasses means Rome colored glasses too, dang it. So it was definitely Alba Longa's fault that Rome had to destroy Alba Longa in the mid-600s, which left the Latin League with the vacant leadership spot, conveniently filled by the Romans during the reign of our favorite old chap Tarquinius. And emphasis on old at this stage, because 13 years after his ouster, which had been the end of a 26-year reign, Tarquinius is back in 496 for one more crack at the old Roman throne. You see, though Tarquinius had been forced to stop leading the Roman kingdom, he'd kept right on leading the Latin League, now against the Romans. But the Romans won handily against their old king and their old tribesmen, and they leveraged this into a generous treaty that effectively combined the power of the Latins with their own while allowing both to act independently, sharing the spoils of future wars. Of course, sometimes the spoils went the other way. We'll get to that in a minute, and yes, I'm foreshadowing, but first, let's catch back up on the plebeian-slash-patrician social question, which, by the way, historians have named the conflict of the orders, if you want to look into it deeper than I'm going here, or, you know, if you want to see it recounted by people who actually know their stuff. On that note, please do feel free to send corrections to this and any episode to popularhistory at gmail.com. That's popular with an E. For years after the formation of the Roman Republic, the plebeians had been trying to place some constitutional-type limits on the power of the consuls, which, as we discussed, were pretty much unlimited unless they vetoed one another or there was a tribune of the plebs physically around to veto them, an office which had been the first concession they'd earned. Now, this power limiting didn't take hold, but what they did get was an agreement to look at making a basic law code. Around 450, traditionally after some study of Greek law texts, though historians are skeptical about that detail, anyways, around 450, a legal code called the Twelve Tables was publicly inscribed in bronze so everyone in the city, and when I say the city without specifying, I always mean Rome, so everyone in the city can see what the rules are. 
A fair amount of the focus was on rules about debtors and creditors, because that was a significant way patricians oppressed plebeians then and now, such as the minimum amount of daily bread you needed to provide someone you were holding in a debtor's prison, that's one pound, though you could provide more if you wanted, and the minimum weight of the fetters you'd use to bind the debtor you were holding in bondage, that's 15 pounds that you could provide more if you wanted. The Twelve Tables had a lasting impact, serving as the guiding star for Roman law for the next thousand years, and influencing in turn all the various nations and peoples influenced by Rome and their successors. You won't hear much of the history of law in this podcast because I plead both confusion and ignorance, and I have learned that I am a slow learner in that topic, but this is a capital B, capital D, big deal. One thing I'm sure was well received was, at least theoretically, the formal adoption of the principle that once a matter was legally decided, it can't be arbitrarily decided differently in an equivalent future case, which is a great way to avoid being governed by the whim and arbitrary best interests of the powerful. Quote, Whatever one or more persons have ordered into law shall be held by the law. End quote. At least, that seems to be what that means, but I need to catch myself, because I was all set to emphasize that this is an early example of stare decisis, aka the legal doctrine of precedent and a cornerstone of common law. Then I saw that evidently it's civil law, the other main legal framework that's normally traced back to Roman law, with common law being a separate thing. Uh, both are popular legal approaches worldwide, and Rome was certainly influential, and I'm gonna move on now before I get myself into more trouble by commenting on things I don't really understand. I can't resist one last note, though. Originally, Table 11 contained a prohibition on intermarriage between patricians and plebeians. This was definitely a rule that got some of that classic tribune personally hanging around vetoing consuls drama going, and it was cancelled a few years later in 445. With laws given a nod, it's time to get back to the perennial topic of Roman history, military activity. Specifically, it's time to talk about Marcus Furius Camillus, nicknamed the second founder of Rome. From the late 5th to the early 4th century, BC as always, Camillus's career saw five terms as dictator in the mold of Cincinnatus, or at least holding the same role as Cincinnatus. He was not too big on returning to farming, and though he had great success, including taking Viei, the wealthiest of Etruscan cities a lot, he made enemies along the way and was eventually accused of embezzling the spoils from that conquest and he was sent into exile. However, Camillus would soon be missed. In or around 387, on July 18th if Tacitus is to be believed, an army of Gauls under the chieftain Brennus handed the Romans their worst defeat to date and sacked Rome. We're told that when the Romans saw that the scales being used to weigh the demanded indemnity had been tampered with in the Gauls' favor, they objected. Brennus replied by adding his sword to the scales, thus tilting them further, and noting, Ve victus, that is, woe to the vanquished. This was a bitter lesson, but one that the Romans learned well. Throughout their history, those who went along were treated well, and those who resisted the mind of Rome would be crushed. Now it's likely that Brennus withdrawing after getting paid off is how this particular story actually ended. But Roman pride and Roman propaganda had something to say about that, and suddenly 
We're told how the exiled Camillus was reached at the last minute managed to arrive just in the nick of time to defeat the Gauls and recover the Roman gold. Indeed, in some tellings, he throws his sword on top of the famous sword of Brennus with a defiant declaration in response and starts turning the tide right then and there. This probably isn't what happened, but we're here for the stories, and it sure makes for quite a story. Either way, Camillus was involved in the recovery effort. The city had been burned in the siege, and there was real talk of abandoning it. But Camillus would have nothing of it, and he got folks lined up behind the rebuilding effort. It's here that he really earns the second founder of Rome moniker. At this point, our records and our overall confidence in events improved substantially, because the Gauls were only able to destroy the records floating around as of 387. They apparently went to town on that. But in time, starting with the leadership of Camillus, Rome rebuilt and recovered, stronger than ever, and ready for more. And by ready for more, I of course mean ready for more patricians versus plebeians conflict. To summarize the drama, the takeaway is that in 367, plebeians became eligible for the consulship. Now, by most accounts, the relevant law, the Lex Licinia Sextia, also included provisions limiting private land ownership and how much interest you could charge on a loan. Let's put a pin in that for now. We'll check back in a few hundred years after the Punic Wars. Now, to better prepare you for our next section and the future as we start to look at the broader stretch of Italy and her near neighbors, I've uploaded a map of Italy to our social media feeds courtesy of worldatlasbook.com. I can scarcely excuse the way the map gives the impression that Vatican City is outside Rome proper, since that is very much not the case. But it's overall very helpful for our purposes. It includes all the modern regions of Italy, naming a selection of major cities, and it also gives us some knowledge outside Italy proper, including labeling the nearby seas and the visible neighboring countries. Now, of course, this is a modern map, so keep that in mind and don't go looking for Etruria on it, but this will be our common frame of reference moving forward for the foreseeable future when we're in Italy. I'll tie in locations to their modern equivalents periodically as we go, so you can keep some overall orientation if you've taken the time to familiarize yourself with the modern regions, which I'd recommend. But I'm a nice enough guy, so I'm also sharing a historical map to our social feeds, showing the general timeline of the Roman expansion in Italy, this one being a straightforward bit of public domain lifted from Wikipedia, so my thanks to the various wiki folk. If you haven't found Rome itself, it's that maroon star basically in the middle of the modern map and the maroon blob in the middle of the historical map. In modern terms, you'll notice the city itself is part of a region called Lazio. This is the region where pretty much everything we've talked about so far has taken place, at least since Aeneas stopped topping around everywhere. But that's about to change. We've got happy news of expansion as we turn our focus back to military affairs. Specifically, we're entering a war against the Samnites for territory in Campania. The first Samnite War, 343-341, involved several major victories for the Romans, and they decided to wrap things up. The Latin League, we're told, doesn't want to stop, though, and suddenly it's time for the follow-up Latin War, in which Rome proceeds to hand the Latins their own butts, along with a variety of modified treaties or other consequences, depending on how the different groups had behaved. The Latin League is now dissolved. And for our purposes, they're done. Fast forward a decade, and we've got a long trial in the form of the Second Samnite War, 
aka the Great Samnite War, starting in 326 and carrying on for over two decades. This one includes a significant Roman defeat at a place called the Caldine Forks, where both consuls, presumably both commanding at least one legion, walked into a trap in a narrow valley. By the time they realized the way forward was blocked, their retreat was blocked as well, and they were stuck in the valley. Or in the forks, I suppose. This was, perhaps, the most stinging defeat the Romans ever suffered. Not because of a great slaughter of troops, but precisely because there was no slaughter. The Romans were sent on their way, by way of a humiliating ceremony demonstrating their helplessness. To leave, they had to pass, quote, under the yoke, end quote, literally walking beneath an arch made of three spears lashed together, a symbolic act meant to make it crystal clear that the trapped Romans, including, mind you, both consuls for the year, were completely at the mercy of the Samnites. This episode led not only to a lot of shame and seething rage, the Romans never take well to being shamed, but also to a five-year truce, at least according to one account. But another historian contradicts this, saying that the Senate rejected the truce and the war quickly resumed. Oh, wait, turns out both these accounts came from Livy. He contradicts himself here. Ah well, what can you do? In any case, whether sooner or later, at some point, the war is resumed, and you can bet that the Samnites paid for the humiliation they'd lavished on the Romans. By the end of that war in 304, the Romans had secured major holdings in the Adriatic side of the Italian peninsula, large pieces of the modern regions of Abruzzo, Molise, and Apulia. They now stretched from one sea to another. But there were still lands to be conquered on the peninsula, both to their south and to their north. And there were still independent Samnite lands. It's the Samnites who get credit for spurring on the main adjustments that shift the legions from following a general mold of a Hellenistic phalanx with their deep lines of hoplite spearmen to the much more flexible and subdivided manipole system that gives them even more success in their efforts, especially at close range. I won't go into that since that's also far from my specialty. If you want a great overview in podcast form, check out episode 14 of Mike Duncan's History of Rome podcast which, as you might have already guessed, yes, Mike Duncan's History of Rome is my recommendation for the week. In 298, an ally of Rome tattled that the Samnites were being mean to them, and Rome intervened, gobbling up all sorts of Samnite land in the process, filling out their share of the modern regions previously mentioned, and adding much of modern Umbria to the list. What's most interesting to me here, though, is that it seems the Romans didn't get rid of every trace of Samnia, even though the Samnites had given Rome their worst humiliation in their history, Brennus had at least had the courtesy to let them die with honor defending their city, despite all that humiliation, it seems that the Romans figured that the last remnants of the Samnites weren't worth the effort to disband. Accordingly, they'll pop up again in a while, as a mostly subjugated but still undigested element looking for some unsubjugation. Now, before we get on to the next war, let's close out a conflict. 287 is usually marked as the end of the conflict of the orders, with the passing of the Lex Hortensia, a law that made the resolutions of the Plebeian Council binding on patricians without the approval of the Senate being required, which had been a final step for applying Plebeian Council resolutions to patricians that had acted as a significant check on the Plebeian Council before. 
And if you're thinking you missed me introducing the Plebeian Council before, you didn't. This is the first time I've mentioned it, because this is the first time it's really become a force, having only been operating with the approval of the Senate before. Similar to our discussion of censor versus consul, though, the Plebeian Council will now fade back into the background again, both for simplicity and because the Senate is definitely the more famous institution. But just know that the Plebeian Council is officially a thing, and know that, for our purposes, we're officially done with the conflict of the orders. I mean, you know, as such. Wait until we get to the Gracchi. The next big war that the Romans wage is against an opponent that would have been all too familiar to the Jewish people thanks to Alexander. The Greeks. Now, to be clear, King Pyrrhus of the Greek kingdom of Epirus, just across the Adriatic Sea from Apulia, the high heel of the famous Italian boot, King Pyrrhus was no Alexander, and he didn't have the full resources of Alexander's old empire at his disposal. But he proved a worthy opponent, beating the Romans in the Battle of Heraclea in 280, the first year of the war, during which he introduced them to war elephants for the first time to great effect, an approach which the Greeks had picked up under Alexander during their campaigns in distant India. But the ever-adaptive Romans learned how to handle elephants a little better in time for the Battle of Asculium the next year, and though Pyrrhus technically carried the day in that battle as well, this is the battle behind the term Pyrrhic victory for a too costly win. Quote, if we are victorious in one more battle with the Romans, we shall be utterly ruined. End quote. That's from Plutarch. Fortunately for Pyrrhus, I suppose, he had no more victories against the Romans. After a detour to Sicily, where he focused on fighting Carthage in an ancient Greek tradition, Carthage and Greek states had been fighting for control of the island on and off for over 300 years. After that detour, Pyrrhus returned to a climactic final battle against the Romans and he managed to avoid the foretold utter ruin of another victory by losing. He went back across the Adriatic to the Greek heartlands, and he got himself a consolation prize by taking over Macedon, and he was last seen munching on Sparta. Despite his being most famous for a victory that tasted like defeat, I gotta say, Pyrrhus was no joke. Also no joke, of course, was Rome. You may now update your map to show full Roman control of the modern provinces of Campania and Apulia, previously only partially dominated, as well as the entirety of two new southern regions, Basilicata and Calabria. In short, Rome now controls the entire southern half of the Italian peninsula. Incidentally, that last battle with Pyrrhus had taken place near a city called Maleventum, meaning bad fortune. Shortly after the war, it was renamed Beneventum. Good fortune. The Romans spent the next few years making their way up the boot of Italy, absorbing roughly the modern regions of Tuscany, Umbria, and Marcia. They stopped short of invading the lands of the Cisalpine Gauls, for now, Cisalpine being a way to distinguish them from the Transalpine Gauls, north of the Alps, the Alpine Mountains, which then, as now, marked the boundary of the Italian peninsula. As you may recall, it had been the Gauls under Brennus who had sacked Rome in 390. Woe to the vanquished, indeed. Speaking of vanquished, 264 is the end of Etruria as an independent thing. The last Etruscan city to fall was apparently Volsinii, which was probably near Orvieto in Umbria, though there is an active debate. 
Another debated, but certainly hard to pass at mentioning detail, is that since this first display of gladiators at Rome took place in the same year Volsini fell, it's theorized that Etruscan captives from Volsini may have been part of that particular display. For today, let's leave Rome here, on the cusp of greatness. Tune in next week for episode 8.9, Carthago Delinda Est. Thank you, as usual, to our sound engineer, Billy, our logo designer, Russ, and our ever-patient Vice Pope, Mrs. Popular History. Thank you for listening. God bless y'all.